Principal Matters Podcast, episode 343. Hi, friends. This is Will Parker, host of Principal Matters, the School Leaders Podcast, where each week I bring you inspiring, innovative, and imaginative ideas for your own school leadership. This week, we're going to talk about supporting resilience in education with my special guest, Dr. Brooke Tuttle. Brooke McCrary Tuttle serves as the director of the Center for Family Resilience at Oklahoma State University. The mission of the Center for Family Resilience is to strengthen university and community capacity to prevent risk and promote resilience for individuals and families across Oklahoma by connecting research and practice. In her role at the center, Brooke leads community-based research and translational science initiatives around topics of youth development, offender reintegration, health disparities, and children's mental and behavioral health prevention. She received her MS in criminal justice from the University of Central Missouri and holds a PhD in human sciences from OSU. Her research focuses broadly on topics of youth development, as well as risk and resilience for police officers and law enforcement families. She also partners with local and state entities on school-based prevention programming to promote positive mental and behavioral health outcomes for students in Oklahoma. Prior to joining the OSU Center for Family Residence Resilience, Dr. Tuttle gained experience in government and nonprofit sectors through direct and indirect support of individuals and families impacted by justice system involvement to include youth group homes, juvenile corrections settings, juvenile diversion and delinquency prevention programming, and federal probation and pre-trial services. She currently teaches courses on adolescent development and family risk and resilience at Oklahoma State University. In addition to her work at OSU, Brooke is passionate about promoting first responder wellness through uh, broad engagement with first responders supporting organizations to include the Warriors Rest Foundation, the Bench Foundation, formerly known as the Trooper Leon Bench Foundation. Brooke McCrary Tuttle, or Dr. Tuttle. Welcome to Principal Matters Podcast. I know that was a lengthy bio, but you've done a lot of very interesting things. And I want Principal Matters listeners to have some context as we step into this conversation. But I'm going to ask you what I ask almost all my guests, which is, why don't you fill in the gaps on that intro and tell us something listeners might be surprised to know about you. All right. Well, hey, Will, thanks for having me. It's such a privilege to be here and an honor and a great way to end my week. I've been looking forward to this so much. In terms of filling in the gaps, something like interesting about me that I left out. Hmm. Let me think. Well, I'm from uh, Kansas City, Missouri, and I don't know if this was in the bio, but I also have some experience in the national security world. And so um, I did some work on military bases for a while doing security clearance investigations. So I've had a pretty unorthodox trajectory into how I got to where I am now, and I'm sure we'll kind of unpack that. But it's all broadly related to the well-being of people, right? That's what I'm about. So It is about the well-being of people. And I'll say something else that's, that people may be surprised to know about you. Um, but that's that I know you personally, not just through our work with students in schools, but also through our local church. And I know your amazing husband. So thank you for not only just being a great um confidant in education, but also a friend. And the reason that I wanted to jump in this conversation with you, Brooke, is because as we've gotten to know each other and the work that you've done through Oklahoma State University, especially at the Tulsa campus, which is close to where I am, we've shared stories of the work that I do 
in education with school leaders. And you've shared stories with me about the ways that you service schools and the cross-section that happens sometimes between research and support, like what you do, and practice, which is what those of us in schools do. So I want to introduce Principal Matters listeners to this conversation by just talking about the importance of resilience, and especially what you do in, as, the, as the director for the Center for Family Resilience. So let me ask you to set the stage. Can you tell us what led you into this work and what motivates you in it? Um, and then we'll talk a little bit more about some of the things that the Center for Family Resilience does. Yeah, absolutely. So I have kind of a long, windy pathway to get to where to where I am. Uh, my background's in criminal justice sciences, and I can say, Will, that I remember when I was a kid, when I was a middle school student, always being really drawn um, to the students who were maybe struggling. Um, I was like keenly aware at a young age of um, what I now know to be disparities. Um, that exist in schools, and I was always drawn to the students who were really at risk for dropping out and later for criminal involvement, and I found myself kind of tutoring and coming alongside those students when I was a student myself. This really kind of led to my interest in developing passion for juvenile justice work, and so I went on to study criminal justice sciences with a focus on juvenile justice um, back in Missouri for my undergrad and graduate degree. And then after kind of taking a kind of a detour and working in the national security realm on some military bases, doing security clearance investigations, I really wanted to get back to working with young people. I had spent quite a bit of time in internship experiences and work experiences in a variety of, of juvenile diversion settings and justice involved settings for young people. And I missed that work. And so when I relocated to Oklahoma, I found myself first teaching uh, high school students at Tulsa Tech in the criminal justice department. So that was fun. Um, I did that for a short while and then really kind of planted some roots in nonprofit youth work. And so I worked at Youth Services of Tulsa in juvenile prevention programming or juvenile diversion programming with youth and their families youth had been, who had been in trouble for minor crimes, um, trying to keep them diverted away from further court involvement through kind of education and prevention programming. And did that for a few years and absolutely loved serving youth and families in that way. And so it was really fostering my passion for, for doing that work. And it was really fulfilling, Will. But I remember just very clearly at one point when I was at Youth Services of Tulsa thinking, man, could I have a little bit more of a treetop view on some of these issues? Could I have a little bit more of a macro level impact? Um, I want to be in a position where I can have a little bit broader reach on some of these issues, which led me to the PhD program in human sciences at Oklahoma State University, where I was able to learn from a lot of wonderful people, um, had some great mentorship here and still do. And developed some skills in research and program evaluation and, and learned more about evidence-based programming and prevention strategies. And, and now I'm able to help the helpers. And so instead of working in direct service with youth and families in those settings, really at the center here, we are coming alongside schools and organizations who serve youth and families. And we are helping to kind of bridge that gap between research and practice. And so we're wanting to really get the emerging research and science into the hands of, of practitioners, of educators, of family members, so that they can do the best work possible. And that's what I'm really passionate about. That's what motivates me. You know, Will, there's this crazy gap between research and practice that's really, depending on who you talk to, 
it's anywhere between 10 and 14 years uh, between when we find out interesting research findings and when they really trickle down to impact people in the field and impact families directly. And that's just too long, you know? And so I, I look at things like the pandemic and how rapidly our world has changed in the past three years. And we don't have 14 years to sit around and wait. And so centers like ours have the unique privilege of helping to kind of bridge that gap and, and move that research out a little bit quicker, hopefully. Well, it's one of the things that I love about doing the show, Brooke, is that, um, and I can call you Brooke yes. or Dr. Tuttle, but since I'm we Brooke. know each other, I'll call you Brooke. Um, but one of the things I love about doing the show is, first of all, I'm a very curious person, so I'm always learning. And so anytime I meet someone whose field intersects with mine, but even when I meet someone whose field doesn't, I'm still very curious. But I did not know that statistic, 10 to 14 years before research actually meets practice. And that's one of the things I appreciate about um, being able to connect Principal Matters listeners with the people whom I'm meeting is that we don't need to wait 10 to 14 years. Let's have that conversation right now. And even though you're based in Oklahoma and you serve Oklahoma schools, I have listeners from all over the U.S. and globally. And so I want to have the conversation here that might help them think about what this may look like in their communities. And if you live in Oklahoma and you want to reach out to Brooke to talk about ways that OSU's Center for Family Resilience can service your school, we'll share her contact information at the end. But whether you live close or not, I think that intersection of research and practice is so important. So can you please explain? I'd like listeners to understand what it looks like when OSU's Center for Family Resilience is serving schools. So can you explain a little bit more about what that looks like? Yeah, absolutely. So how do we carry out our mission of really conducting research to practice to promote resilience? Well, we do that in about three different ways, primarily. So we do program evaluation and needs assessment work. And that is one area we've done a lot of work with schools in that space. Um, so helping them understand student needs, family needs, um, using data to make informed decisions about programs and policies and practices that they're kind of implementing or deciding to get rid of in their school sites. We also provide uh, technical assistance. And so we will take what we know from research and science and kind of the new stuff that's coming out and the stuff that's been around for a long time. Um, and we will leverage university resources with community strengths and the insights from site leaders, principals, you know, if we're talking about schools, nonprofit leaders, if we're talking about nonprofits and community members themselves, um, we will kind of leverage all of those things to provide some strategy um, sessions, some technical assistance and coaching, if you will, to schools and community partners as they do things like make plans, strategic plans, action plans to really support whole child needs, specifically in the mental and behavioral health realm. And so, you know, we do the program evaluations and needs assessments. We do technical assistance sessions and kind of workshops that leans a little more like professional development sessions. And then also we do just translation and education of research. And oftentimes, well, that looks like monthly research to practice seminars. We're in the middle of a seminar series on kind of health and wellness right now. Um, we do annual conferences on resilience. And so we're always looking for ways to end people who want to share their research with folks. And we're looking for folks who want to inform research, who want to say, here's a problem I'm facing in my school or my agency. How can we solve this? Is there any researchers that you know who might want to tackle this together? And so we're really just trying to kind of be that, that bridge, that matchmaker, if you will, and, and foster opportunities for research to inform practice and also for practice to inform research. 
Wow. Okay. So Principal Matters listeners, you may have heard me mention Dr. Brooke Tuttle in a previous episode. So if anyone's listening for the first time, this you won't have context, but if you're a longtime listener, I think it was episode 337 that I had Dr. Helen Kelly on, who was who's a, a British author and educator who wrote a book called School Leadership Matters, How to Prevent Burnout um, in education and specifically for education leaders. And Brooke, we were talking about in my conversation with Dr. Helen Kelly, just about the, what the research that she's looked at in terms of the number of people leaving the profession because of how difficult it is emotionally um, in terms of time management, but also because of the emotional toll that the work takes on them as well. And so before I lose you, I'm going to hold this question for later, but I want to come back because I mentioned in your, I mentioned in conversation with her that you've done some research in the effects of those similar tolls that happen within the work of law enforcement, especially in the concept of moral injury that, that, you know, managing really, really difficult emotional situations in the, in the, in the line of service. And so I want to come back to that in just a little bit, but before I do, so I'm I'm wetting the taste of our audience because this is a topic that I want to pick your brain on. But before I do, I want to stay here because with those three areas, program and needs assessments, technical assistance, and translating education into um, seminars, conferences, keeping people up to date on that work. What are some examples of how you're currently serving schools and, and then how can they apply those lessons in their own practice? Yeah, absolutely. So one way um, that we've done some of that technical assistance and and program evaluation work is really um, through some current school-based prevention work that we're doing in collaboration with the Oklahoma Department of Mental Health and Substance Abuse Services. So they're a big partner for us. Um, And we've been providing supports um, to several school districts across the state um, as they develop multi-tiered systems of support. So MTSS action plans specifically around behavioral, emotional, and mental health prevention. And so you um, you had a recent episode about RTI and MTSS, and it, it, of course, ranges, you know, obviously includes academics and whole child needs. Really where our center focuses is, is kind of on risk prevention and health promotion really related to primary prevention, universal practices that are going to buffer against substance use risks for kids, um, bullying, school violence, um, tobacco use, marijuana use, you name it, mental health concerns, anxiety, depression, suicide ideation. We're really firmly planted in kind of the part of the triangle that's looking at primary prevention for mental and behavioral health concerns of students. So we come alongside schools and, and we talk about all things, you know, primary prevention in that area everything from selecting um, evidence-based programs and practices that really meet needs of their specific school sites, the local the local needs. And we do that by helping schools look at different data sources that they have maybe internally, uh, hearing from teachers, hearing from students and parents, looking at larger you know, state-level data and even national trend data to see what are some of these pressing and emerging issues that our students are facing um, especially in the heels of, of, of the pandemic, right? And and after we kind of understand the need and help them see the need and they've identified some target areas they want to address, our team comes alongside them and helps them pick and select, you know, evidence-based programs that are proven to be effective, 
why might this be a good fit for your school? What grade bands might it be good in? What are going to be some barriers or landmines we might step on if we try to do this in your school? Who's going to champion this? How will you roll this out? We do timeline planning. We do communication planning. We talk about how to engage parents in that process, make sure they're very aware of what's going on in the prevention realm. Um, we just really walk schools through all aspects of that. And so I think that's an example, a really key example of something we're doing lately. We've been doing this work for a few years now, and we're going into kind of our fourth year in this work. And that's an example of how our center services schools and comes alongside schools. Wow. Okay. So I'm just going to pause there for a moment and say, first of all, um, that's incredible. What a, what a wonderful way to take the expertise and the research and the resources that you have at a university and then connect them back to the communities that you're serving. So I'm going to ask a question that a Principal Matters listener might be asking who's outside of the Oklahoma area. First of all, if you live in the Tulsa area or you live in the um, Oklahoma City area or you live anywhere across the state of Oklahoma, you should already be ready to write down the contact information for the OSU Center for Family Resilience so that you can figure out how can we partner with this? Because what an amazing way to, to provide an additional um, research-based resource organization that can help funnel ideas and best practices into the work that you're doing with students. But Brooke, let's pretend that I'm not in Oklahoma. What are some of the other organizations or universities, state or federal groups that folks outside of our state could be maybe looking at if they're trying to figure out like, where can I find these kinds of resources that could possibly be a strong partnership for my school? Yeah, great question. Um, I definitely would always point everybody to their local state department of education. There's always some granting opportunities coming out of there along with their local state health departments in Oklahoma. We have a whole department of mental health and substance abuse services that's engaged in this type of work. Our Oklahoma State Department of Ed is engaged in this type of work. So look at the state level. Um, if you're in an area where there's tribal resources, tribal resources are phenomenal, especially in terms of prevention. When we're talking about substance use prevention, violence prevention, child nutrition, a lot of whole child needs, they can really be a, a strong, strong partner for school districts, um, both within and outside of our state, depending on where you're located and who's in your area. And then just kind of broadly, not specifically, but I'm always an advocate of find a university partner. Um, find a university partner, uh, be willing to kind of reach out and engage and, and break down some silos because you will find faculty and graduate students and centers and institutes who are skilled in some of these things or who have an interest in learning it and coming alongside you. And I think it can be a real big asset to any size of school district, Will, but especially for rural school districts across this country. Um, tapping into university resources is just a, a really smart, a smart thing to do, I think, because sometimes whether that's building out data infrastructure or doing some of that um, evaluation work, collecting data that's going to help inform decisions, those are going to be some things that you know, our, our larger districts sometimes have whole evaluation and assessment teams available to them. Our smaller districts do not, right? And so being innovative, creative, and not afraid to partner and reach out um, to see what, what, what types of resources are in your area that you could kind of pull together um, to do something like this in, in, in your part of the world. That's such wise feedback, Brooke. And for Principal Matters listeners, you may be in an area where you already have strong connection, whether you're urban or suburban, to a nearby university, 
or maybe someone within your state department or someone that you know in a family resource center or because sometimes population sizes determine institutions or organizations that are available. But you're right, Brooke, sometimes for those of you that are listening that maybe are in outlying areas or rural communities, um, don't be shy to pick up the phone and call someone at a university and say, hey, here's the need that I have. And I'll give you an example, Brooke. When I was leading um, at Skytook High School, which is a rural community north of Tulsa, Oklahoma, and, and Skytook is still close to Tulsa, but outside the city, uh, we were um, encountering some students that were second language learners coming in. And we had had, uh, we had no one on our our team who was second language or English language. Um, no one was certified for, for second language learners or, or trained in that kind of skill set. And you know how difficult it is to find teachers already and staff in Oklahoma with the difficulty to find certified employees. So I just picked up the phone and started making some phone calls to a couple of universities in town and just asked them who within your community has strong connections to language acquisition programs, to language learners on your university campus. And they put me in contact with um, one of the ladies at that time who was working in their graduate program with language learners. And she began to travel to our district and work directly with our kids. We were able to hire her as a part-time employee to put her on a contract so that she could work with us part-time and help transition those students in our community into stronger classroom engagements and language acquisition. She introduced us to another person that took over the year after that for her. And so you're right, sometimes just recognizing that even though that expertise may not exist in my community, our universities often have wide ranges of connections to people who do. They're just, it, sometimes we just haven't, we don't connect the two together. Um, anything you want to add to that before I ask my next question? No, I would just, the only thing I would add to that, Will, is all universities are awesome. I'm a huge higher ed fan, right? Um, but if you're really, every state has a land grant university. Oklahoma State just happens to be the land grant university where part of our mission here is to go out and serve Oklahomans, right? And so we have a presence. The university has a presence in every county in the state. And so you could also look to your land grant, local land grant within your state and see if there's related or similar resources that I'm describing here, because you may, you may find something there. Wow. That's so practical. Thank you for that. I'm curious, this is my next question, Brooke, what are trends that you're seeing on the horizon for supporting students or family well-being, And how does, how might those trends influence the ways that leaders and those listening to this program need to be prepared to serve students? Yeah, so what trends are we seeing in terms of things that are impacting students and families and how is that helping us guide schools? Um, I'm going to kind of go back to the drum I've been beating probably this whole <laughs> this whole chat, Will, is we're really kind of working the prevention space with schools, uh, mental and behavioral health prevention. And because of the pandemic and what we are seeing in the data at a national level, when we look at landscape data at the national level, um, we need prevention, prevention prevention. Um, you know, I was looking at some data from the YRBS. The CDC does a big kind of landscape surveillance um, risk survey. It's the youth risk behavior surveillance survey that goes out. And they looked at trend data from 2011 to 2021. So obviously this captures the height of the pandemic as well. And we're seeing, as we expect, unfortunately, um, very poor mental health outcomes um, and some real challenges for, for our young people, for our students across this nation right now. 
uh, particularly for female students and for students who identify as LGBTQ+. Um, this is, I think, what everybody expected, but, but the statistics are pretty alarming. Um, you know, a couple of things I pulled when I was preparing for this chat, Will, was, you know, looking at that kind of highlight trend report. In 2021, YRBS is showing that 60% of female students experienced persistent sadness and hopelessness, and 25% of female students surveyed had made a suicide plan. Numbers were even higher for our students from the LGBTQ plus community. So what is, you know, predictable is preventable. Um, so these things are happening. We knew this was coming. Uh, we can we can get out ahead of it. We can do some things to protect kids from this and, and minimize the effects of the pandemic and um, on them. And we know that school connectedness matters. And so I wanna definitely leave a positive note here. I say prevention, prevention, prevention. and relationships or prevention, right, um, at, at their core. And so I know you've had guests on here that talk about the importance of intimate relationships between staff and students and the power of connection. And we hear things thrown around, which there's so much truth in these kind of cute quotes, but, you know, it's like relationships before rules and connection before correction. All of that is true, right? Mm -hmm. And so school connectedness, while we know that the cards are kind of stacked against some of our young people right now in terms of risks to their to their behavioral health and mental health, um, we also know the school connectedness and positive caring adults really matter. And they are some of the largest protective factors in a young person's life. And we know that school is a safe haven, can be a safe haven, and is a place where so much development and growth socially, emotionally, physically, relationally, um, so much more than just academic growth happens, right, in the schoolhouse and in the school. And so I think the way we take this information and we say what's coming is we need more prevention, 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 health promotion to, to kind of mitigate some of this risk is we go back to relationships. I mean, you can throw every program in practice that is science-based, um, that is research-based, that is supposed to work. But if you throw it on top of or layer it into a school climate and culture that's not ready for it, that's not healthy, that's not thriving, that's not warm and welcoming and positive, where students aren't known by name by teachers, where teachers don't know one another, um, you know, we're not going to see the return on investment that we expect to see from those evidence-based programs. And so I think as we partner with schools um, now moving forward and, and empowered with this data and also their local data, we just want to be kind of slow and steady and, and focus on good old fashioned relationships, right? We have to have a solid foundation on which to build any of this prevention work. And that, was, that takes time and trust and it's messy because people are messy, uh, but leaders need to do it. Teachers need to do it. Parents need to do it. Um, we all need to do it. It takes a village. It takes a community um, for our kids. And so, yeah, prevention, prevention, prevention. But prevention, uh, relationships are prevention would be my takeaway. Hi, friends. I want to take a quick break here to ask you a question. Did you know that leaders learn better together? When we isolate ourselves from the input and inside of others, then we work within the limitations of our own ideas and experience. And that's why I'm so grateful that you're listening to this podcast right now. It's also why I want to keep you informed of upcoming episodes, as well as leadership academies, mastermind offerings, or executive coaching opportunities I'm making available to leaders like you. 
go to williamdparker.com and check out the services link to learn more or visit my website and select the subscribe button to be on the weekly principal matters mailing list thank you so much for learning together now let's jump back into the rest of today's episode wow brooke i'm just getting um almost emotional as you're sharing these statistics but then also your follow-up because i just want to reiterate a couple of things that you said because for those of us who are in practice we live these things and i know principals especially and school leaders especially live the statistics you're describing you know the poor mental health outcomes the the difficulty of of mental anxiety among our female students and our lgbtq plus students and as difficult as it is to live in a in a political climate where those things become often become culture wars or where politicians seem to think they're somehow going to legislate or mandate something that will influence cultural outcomes those who actually work with students know exactly what you just said that relationships and connections and trust and creating places where people are treated with dignity and respect and value and are listened to and provided a, a, a safe environment for learning, those are places where students thrive. And the pandemic accelerated the absence of that. When you separate kids from schools, when you separate people from people, um, and some of that was within our control and some of that was way beyond our control. So is, and I'm not saying any of this as a, um, looking back at, as, as a criticism on the practices that different schools and communities had to choose because some were in places where the choices were harder because of the higher populations or the lack of services available. But regardless of what happened in the past to bring us to this situation, this is what we're facing right now, which is a ongoing growing number of students who live with high anxiety and poor mental health outcomes. And then you pile on top of that statistics that um, you didn't necessarily touch on from the CDC there, but the amount of anxiety that students and kids and families live with when it comes to concerns over school violence, all these things, they build on one another. And so we have this culture right now that is um, a very toxic place to live. And so how do we create environments that where we would want our own children showing up every day where they can thrive? And so that question can be applied two ways. One, how are you practicing those kinds of um, approaches within your own life, your own lifestyle, your own home, your own family? And then how are you trying to create those same kind of environments in the places where we work and where our kids go to school? So I'm just curious, you've spent a lot of time working with schools and you talked to me off the air a little bit about this cross-section collaboration. Why is that important? Why is it important as you stepped into schools? What are some of the successes you've seen or or even what are some of the um, maybe areas of concern that you've seen that you would address as you're speaking to school leaders about what they can do about this and how they might co collaborate for solutions? Yeah, so in terms of the importance of cross-sector collaboration, multidisciplinary approaches to this work, interdisciplinary approaches, I mean, I think it's critical. I think it's the way of the future. Um, I have a whole another stump speech I'll give another time on how I think we should be, you know, training teacher in teacher prep classes and for really any industry teaching everything from from a multidisciplinary lens, right? But that that's talking about things like team teaching and all kinds of things uh, that we don't see a ton of in higher ed. But 
I think it's critical uh, because schools are so strapped and stretched thin and they're at capacity and yet day after day um, they have more burden on their shoulders. You know, they're the pseudo parent, they're the pseudo counselor, they're the pseudo police officer. I mean, they are expected to do so much more than um, educate kids, right? Which was their, the primary focus, right? And why many of our educators went to school in the first place. Um, with the increasing demands, we need to see increased partnerships and, and collaborations, and those are hard. Um, but I think that is the best way to leverage community resources um, to, to, to meet student needs and to not um, completely max out teachers and educators um, because they can't, they can't do it all. They shouldn't have to do it all, but together, together we're better, right? And so when you reach out to community mental health agencies, to tribal partners, to universities, to local nonprofits and food pantries, and you maybe think of innovative ways to meet student and family needs um, in the school, but utilizing and pulling all these levers at the same time, I think that's the way of the future. And that's the only way to reduce any burden on teachers um, and also increase supports for students simultaneously. And it's just hard to do, you know, kind of new partnerships are scary. Um, there's not a real roadmap for it. It's kind of just like any relationship building between two humans, right? Except it's between agencies and orgs. They all have their own personalities and cultures. And so and they need to be very thoughtful and um, intentional and um, just going to have leaders willing to kind of take that step, really, and reach out. Well, Principal Benders listeners, um, you're going to get Brooke's contact information here at the end of the conversation. And I want you to, if you don't already have connection with a partner, I want you to consider reaching out to Brooke and just asking for some suggestions because you may have, um, she may have access to some ideas and suggestions and partners that could help you in your community. With, even if you're outside of Oklahoma, if you're within Oklahoma, definitely reach out. But if you're outside of Oklahoma, don't be afraid to reach out and let Brooke continue to connect you with some ideas and reflections. Brooke, I know we're 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 coming up to the end of this conversation, but I didn't want to leave without asking you this additional question that I had reflected on earlier. You've done research into law enforcement and the concept of of the moral injury that often officers face when in the line of service. And I've been really curious because I've mentioned you in in conversations with leaders who are struggling with their own emotional toll in leadership. I've I've I know I don't have the my own personal access to research on this like you've done with law enforcement, but I have a lot of experience and practice watching educators struggle with some of those same emotions. So before I lose your expertise, I just wanted to ask you for some of your thoughts on the ways that you see some of that research trending in the field of education. Yeah, I love that um, you actually brought this to my attention in terms of have you thought about moral injury and some of these concepts that you're studying in first responders and how those apply to teachers and educators because you guys are on the front lines as well. And um, I have to say that was a light bulb moment for me and it really opened up my world. And so I'm kind of just now dipping my toe into seeing what's out there, Will. But in terms of moral injury, I mean, Moral injury is essentially a psychological wound that's encountered in the line of duty, in this case, in the line of teaching, in the, in the line of, of the profession of being an educator in America um, or anywhere for that matter. And it, this concept came out of really kind of military mental health and military research. And we think of moral injury as, um, let me get the definition for you here so I can get it right. 
It is a lasting emotional or psychological harm that occurs when an individual perpetrates, fails to prevent, bears witness to, or learns about acts that transgress their deeply held moral beliefs and expectations. Mm -hmm. And so that's easy to think about in kind of a, a military or paramilitary subculture when you think about like a raid on a home or something. Um, but in the school setting, there is some new research coming out about this. I'm um, excited to learn more about it. But examples of this happening in education are so clear once you kind of glance at this research. It's like having to comply with a school mandate or a policy, a uh, piece of legislation that you morally disagree with, but you have to do as a part of your job duties. That is a values conflict. That's an ethical dilemma. And that can result in a moral injury to, to an educator or to a leader. Um, implementing programs or practices that you don't think are the best for your students, but it is an expectation and it's part of your job and your job performance. And so that can be a moral injury. Feeling betrayed by your colleagues or by your administration can be considered moral injury. And then we think about, you know, some of the more recent and new and unfortunate events and the things we're facing around school violence. Um, to me, this is a very clear and compelling and timely issue that we're going to see more and moral injury coming out of this because we've kind of got teachers on one side that say, I would love to, or I would, I'm not going to carry, I'm totally against carrying a firearm in school. It's not my job. I don't want to do it. They're absolutely right in thinking that. You have other teachers um, and on their morals and values say, I absolutely want to be able to protect the kids in my class and I would have no problem carrying if I was allowed to carry. They're absolutely right in feeling that way. It's not a right and wrong. Well, it is a values-based issue. It is a moral dilemma. It is an ethical dilemma that we're faced with in today's society. And that, I think, is going to be what is really um, inciting moral injury uh, for educators as we move forward. They're really wrestling with some really tough stuff right now that may really conflict with their own values and their own morals. And so I think that this is just scraping the surface. And I would imagine that in a couple of years, we could have a whole conversation about where this this line of research has gone for educators. Well, Dr. Tuttle, you know, because I like to give you a hard time that I've already tasked you with coming with with finding me some graduate students who can begin to do research on this. And I'm only partly joking because um, but you just really dropped some very heavy thoughts on Principal Matters listeners as we're wrapping up. But they're very important ones that I want to make sure if you've listened this far into today's program that you actually rewind and listen to that again, because I've not been able to put into words the emotional, I'm going to use these words right now though, the emotional trauma that I see educators consistently wrestling with in order to implement their jobs successfully. And, um, and so this idea that, um, that sometimes we actually impose psychological injury on the people with whom we're working because we're asking them to do things that are way beyond their, value systems. And this is the dilemma is this, Brooke, that strong communities of learning that recognize the importance of collaboration, dignity, respecting of differences, they, in, in, the, in the best case scenarios, there's schools that allow people some levity in determining how they're going to approach situations, implement curriculum, manage their classroom rules, enough autonomy for them to feel comfortable with their own implementation of practice unhealthy and toxic cultures 
I'm just talking from what I've observed in the years I've spent working with leaders and in schools are places that impose for everyone what it's going to be like, like it or not. And that same, that same toxic um, environment is created when politicians do that, when policymakers do that, um, and when, when districts or school boards do that. And so I just want to, I, I don't, we don't have time for solution-based responses to this right now, but I do just want to tell you, Principal Matters listeners, if you've wrestled with these emotions, it's because they're real and you're not alone. And, and I'm just so grateful for people like you, Brooke, who do the research and helping families and um, caregivers. And in your case, you've studied law enforcement a lot. Even our service, our first responders figure out how to manage these emotions and I think it's time for educators to have that same kind of service too, that we that we recognize that that part of this is not just salary, it's not just teacher shortage, it's it's this enormous amount of responsibility that we place on them um, by asking them to be the referees of all the crazy stuff going on in our culture when they just want to serve kids. And so if you're listening to this and you have the power or the authority or the presence or the position to insulate your teachers from some things and to remind them that what really matters is loving and caring for these kids. Um, which means sometimes you you listen to the things that are coming to you from the top down, but you try to m- manage with and around sometimes things that could put teachers in really uncomfortable positions. That's the hard work of leadership, um, but it's also an important part of of making sure you're leading a school community that at the end of the day is building strong, caring relationships so that those expectations you have for learning are met through trusting relationships so kids can learn and thrive. I know we've gone way over time, Brooke, on this conversation, but how can listeners stay connected with you if they want to find out more about the Center for Family Resilience or just connect with you to find out ways they might could receive supports or recommendations? Yeah, I, I would invite anybody to just shoot me an email. Um, I try to be very responsive to that. It's it, I'll put it in the show notes, or I'm sure you will. I guess I won't be. Um, it's brooke.tuttle, that's B-R-O-O-K-E dot Tuttle, T-U-T-T-L-E at okstate.edu. You can also reach our center directly at just cfr at okstate.edu. That's cfr at okstate.edu. Well, Dr. Brooke Tuttle, thank you so much for your expertise and for your caring. And for Principal Matters listeners, I just want to thank you for taking time to listen and to learn. You may be already wrestling with some questions you have in response to this podcast episode. And if so, feel free to email me directly at will at williamdparker.com or you can reach out to Brooke directly at brooke.tuttle at okstate.edu. Until next time, thank you so much for doing what matters and we'll talk to you again soon. You can find free resources like this one at my website at williamdparker.com. Check out the services link on williamdparker.com to learn more about leadership academies, mastermind offerings, and executive coaching. If you're planning professional development for the year ahead, or you're looking for keynote presentations from any of my books, please email me at will at williamdparker.com. Thank you for learning together today, and thanks again for doing what matters.